Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Additional support for the Hinckley Report comes from State Street. I'm Sean Higgins, co-host of KUER's State Street podcast. We're here to help you make sense of Utah politics and what's at stake for you. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Republican Senator Todd Weiler, Sage Miller, political reporter with KUER, and Jeff Merchant, executive director of Alliance for a Better Utah. So glad you're all here. We've just finished week three of the legislative session. It might feel a little bit longer. We just finished week three. We have so much more to do. But what I think is interesting about this week, we'll start with you, Senator, is this is the week of the RFA, the request for appropriation. And the list is long of those coming in. Talk about what those are, how this process works for a moment. Yeah, so the great thing about the Utah legislature is every legislator is involved in a budget committee that's kind of unique to Utah. And then anybody can come up and ask for money. They need to have a legislative uh, sponsor, and it's called an RFA, and then they'll get four or five minutes in front of an appropriations committee to make their pitch. Most of them are not funded. Um, and this year, we've made the whole process a little bit more transparent. So uh, for the first time in my 13 years, I'm seeing the RFAs on social media and mm-hmm. people criticizing the legislators for even sponsoring it. But just because you sponsor it, we're just giving someone four minutes to pitch their idea. Yeah, Sage, talk about that because there, there are over a thousand of them that have come forward and there's people with uh, all sorts of things they would like to be funded. I know I was one of them working on the presidential debate, for example. But talk about how uh, the kind of the public can engage with this process and actually see uh, what is being asked and what actually ends up getting funded. Yeah, Governor Spencer Cox is asking for a a ton of money in his budget proposal. And a lot of the times the the legislators like Todd Weiler over here will decide kind of where how they want to divvy that money that he's asking for. And sometimes the governor doesn't even get what he wants. Same with the people who are going in and kind of giving their two cents about why they should get funded. Yeah. Uh, but thankfully they do stream these, right? At the utah.ledge.com. Le.utah.gov. Yeah. And so you can engage and actually watch them live as they're happening to figure out what people are pitching, how much money they want and how lawmakers are responding to it. We don't really know just as of yet, like how much lawmakers are going to divvy up that money and who's going to get what. Todd can probably talk more a little bit about that process of what happens behind closed doors rather than in the public. But yeah, it's the one thing that I will say about the Utah legislature is their transparency when it comes to what's happening right now on the ground, it's pretty strong. And the website uh, for lawmakers, for people to engage, is pretty user-friendly. And so I do think that if you just spend a little bit of time on the lawmaker, on the on the legislative website, you'll be able to kind of figure it out. You can see kind of the status of everything as well. And But yeah, we are going into that big money period, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but the ability to kind of focus more on budget by getting the controversial issues out of the way yeah. first. I do want to talk about that. But maybe for a moment, Jeff, talk about sort of the interplay here because you've got uh, a lot of requests from community organizations, groups, government entities. You have the governor who's presented a budget and you ultimately have the final decision from the legislature, including the uh, very influential executive appropriations committee. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly the Executive Appropriations Committee is going to be making a lot of these decisions, a lot of huge decisions uh, impacting the budget through the entire rest of uh, the fiscal year. But I actually fully agree with what's already been said. This is a relatively transparent process, and it's one that seems more democratic than many of the other things that we see happening at the legislature. A lot of people involved, a lot of people can uh, voice their opinion and their thoughts, and it really is rather transparent. And I think that uh, a lot of people deserve a lot of credit for that. I love the idea that everyone is on these committees and everyone gets a say, uh, whether that's positive or negative, about all of these different RFAs. Yeah, absolutely right. Now talk about uh, the budget just for a moment, Senator, because um, right now you're kind of hearing requests, but we don't actually know what the revenue is going to be. Talk about what that is like. Well, we get our final revenue numbers right around uh, Valentine's Day, and, and it's basically a guess of, of what Utahns are gonna spend in the next 16 months, so we are projecting um, in the future. And we have a couple of PhDs that are really good at that. Um, but we, we know that sales tax is a little bit down um, and it's probably going to be a tight year. And remember, Jason, the last three years we've had extra COVID money to spend and a lot of programs that wouldn't have gotten funded have gotten have been funded. But now that COVID money is dried up. And so a lot of these people are back this year saying, hey, you got to keep on funding us. But we don't have all of the money to do that. Yeah. Is it easier when there's no money or when there's a lot of money? Uh, it's actually easier when there's no money because we can just, <laughs> just say no just to everybody. Know. Yeah. Uh -huh. Very interesting. Uh, Sage, I know you've been uh, following the news here about potential tax cuts because you look at we have maybe a declining uh, revenue coming to the state of Utah, but also some interest in our legislature to cut some taxes. We have one in particular, Senator Chris Wilson, this is Senate Bill 69 income tax amendments, is looking to lower the income tax or to eliminate the in, uh, income tax. What are you hearing about potential places to fill that void if income tax goes away? Honestly, I haven't heard much <laughs> to fill the void, which is why this is kind of interesting. I know that Republicans, and it's an election year, and focusing on taxes usually kind of ramps up and gets kind of the base ready to want to vote for you, especially if we're going into a, a sticky primary in a lot of places. So that that does kind of help give you a little notoriety if you want to focus on this issue. But I really don't know, especially when we're already projected to have a budget shortfall, how cutting taxes in this form would be recruit, recouped in any any way. And I know that some people have issues with income tax, but something that I need to look into is that who exactly would this benefit um, if we were to cut income tax? And is it is it the people that need it the most? Mm -hmm. So the Hinckley Institute of Politics did some polling with the Deseret News asking Utahns uh, how they would feel about uh, eliminating the state income tax, and it was 59% of Utahns said that they would support it, 27% oppose, 14% don't know. But of course, Jeff, the next question is the harder one, is, is uh, what should happen if it does go away? Uh, given your, your lens with the Democratic Party, particularly when you were leading it for a very long time, talk about these tax cuts generally as a principle through the legislative session. Yeah, I mean, look, at a certain level, kind of an unfair question, right? Like, who's going to say that they want to be taxed? Yeah. Most people don't. I know there might be a few Democrats that do. I'm not one of them. I think that not having taxes is a wonderful idea. The problem is, is that then you get millions of dollars in RFAs that are coming in yeah. and you want to fund those, right? My personal view is even the smaller tax uh, reduction that the legislature is looking at seems relatively silly to me, given that, you know, I can go and buy a latte or something for that extra 10 bucks I'm going to save when that $10 that everybody's contributing can do a lot of really great things for the state. 
I think that if we really want to look at tax cuts, where we should be looking at is at uh, something like a sales tax uh, cut or eliminating the sales tax if we're going to eliminate something. And the reason why is because that does affect everyone in a more equal way than income tax. Income tax cuts help people that have a lot of money a whole lot more than people that don't have a lot of money. And I think that a sales tax cut would be a far better approach, uh, despite what might be some of the, the hurdles that we might have doing that. And would they increase like property taxes to recoup that money, which is something that people are already complaining about are spiking at too much of a rapid rate that they can't keep up with? Well, I mean, th those are fair questions because Utah's tax is built on a three-legged stool. One leg is income tax, one leg is sales tax, and one leg is uh, property tax. So if you cut off one leg, uh, you probably get the, the other two legs are going to be uh, is all that's left, and so it's going to have to be property tax or sales tax. But I, I just want to point out that when you cut income tax, um, you know, I always hear the Democrats say, "Well, that doesn't help the poor." The working poor in Utah do not pay income tax we, through the income tax credit, and 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 we base our tax rate off of what the federal government does. The working poor do not pay taxes. So if you're not paying income tax and we cut income tax, that's true, it won't benefit you. But we are, with income tax, we are punishing people for the harder they, uh, they work and the more they earn. And the question is, is that a good tax system or should we be taxing people for what they consume? That's more of a sales tax. Mm -hmm. We're going to be watching this one closely because I know there's a lot of conversations about the potential avenues there. I want to talk about social media for a moment because we had some legislation last year, and I want to get some with you, Senator, because you're running some of this legislation. But uh, there was a, a bill, it was Senate Bill 89, uh, that was already passed, already signed uh, from Senator Col Col Kurt Colomore, who delayed the implementation of some um, some legislation that went into effect last year that did a couple of things. So, Jeff, I want to talk to you about this one in particular. This is what it did. Parents must get permission for a minor to open a social media account, and platforms have to verify the age. There's a state-mandated curfew on social media, 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m., and uh, money was even set aside for potential challenges, and we did get that challenge uh, from uh, NetChoice in particular. So this bill just delayed implementation while they try to work through some of these 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 issues. Talk about it generally from the approach of, I guess, particularly both sides of the aisle, because it seems like social media is clearly in the spotlight. Yeah, you know, look, I think that this is actually a good idea. I, I think as somebody who has three teenage, or has had three teenage daughters, the one that's not a teenager anymore will be very upset that I just said she was. Um, you know, look, this is a challenge that I think a lot of parents have, and it's a challenge that is very, very difficult to overcome on your own. Um, and maybe some people think this is a form of government overreach. Certainly, social media companies think that, but I think that as we saw this week in the Senate, social media companies aren't quite doing enough, and we need to be doing more. This is on the federal stage. On the federal stage, right. Uh, we have seen uh, this lead to a lot of problems. The governor has talked about this. Numerous people have been talking about this, and the fact of the matter is, is that something needs to happen. And frankly, social media companies probably ought to be held accountable for some, of, or if not all of that, in my opinion. Yeah, Sage, I want to uh, play a quote from uh, the governor who's been talking about this very issue. It seems like he's been discussing it more and more, more vocally and along with our legislature. And this is what he said when it comes to social media. Rates of depression, anxiety, loneliness, suicidal thoughts and behaviors have increased in recent years. It's undeniable that social media is harming our children's mental and physical health, brain chemistry, self-esteem, and more. 
So I think the first part of that quote is correct. The CDC put out a report, which a lot of this legislation has been kind of centered around the CDC report. However, they did not directly link those increased rates of depression and suicidality to social media specifically. There has been other studies done from various institutions, both academics and think tanks, that do create this link. But... I do think that exactly what Jeff said, that a lot of parents specifically are very concerned. And the landscape of social media has changed so much. I grew up in the age where when I was a kid, I did not have social media, but as I entered into middle school and high school, it became more prevalent. And so it's something that we're still learning the landscape of, and ex especially with new social media apps popping up. Um, but from kind of the lawyers that I've talked to who are representing, uh, uh, not, not necessarily representing, but are suing on behalf of social media companies, do question the constitutionality of this. And I think Utah was kind of throwing some things at the wall, seeing what would stick because the federal government said, we do need to address this, but we don't know how or mm -hmm. we're not going to, but we are going to make a point that it's an issue. And so Utah, I think, is trying to lay that groundwork, be the leader on it. Will it pan out? Will all of the wishes that Mike McKell wanted last year and Governor Spencer Cox are put, continuing to push for now, will they all come to fruition? Will they get everything they want? Most likely not, but I think that they're happy to get something instead of nothing. Okay. Jason, if, you, if I showed you a chart of uh, emergency room admissions for teenage girls in Utah over the last three decades, it would look like a hockey stick. It's, it's all level until 2009, and then it goes, shoots straight up. What happened in 2009? That's when a lot of Utahns were joining Facebook and social media, and um, it, it is undeniable. There's nothing else that happened in 2009 that would change that, that trajectory. It's been the same, pretty much parallel since the 70s, and then 2009 through 2020. It just shoots straight up. And it's also teenage boys, but it seems to have a, um, and the CDC found this, a much harsher effect on teenage girls. Mm -hmm. Talk about your bill for just a moment, the Children's Device Protection Act. Yeah, Senate Bill 104 would, so uh, let me start off this way. Last year, Apple gave um, uh, thousands of phones to schools for free, which is great. And and they, they turned on the filter on every one. So they knew that they were giving these phones to a kid, so they turned the filters on. Most people don't know, if you buy an iPhone 15 tomorrow, there's already a filter installed, but it takes like 22 steps to activate it. Most people don't know about it. They don't know how to turn it on. So we're asking Apple and other companies, when you're selling a phone and, and the uh, child activates it, when you activate an iPhone, you put in your date of birth. So if they know you're 12 years old, that iOS would then turn on the filter for you. That's what we're asking those companies to do. Be good corporate citizens. Would that just only apply to phones getting sent to Utah, though, or would this just be sweeping over Well, I would be states? happy if Apple would turn on the filters for everyone's phones worldwide and let the adults turn them off. But this, we, I can't legislate for Delaware, so this law would only apply to Utah. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, we, we did ask a question of Utahns about uh, how they feel about social media, about whether they make the state of Utah better off, worse off, makes no difference, don't know. 13% of Utahns said better off, 48% said worse off, 26% says makes no difference. I think as far as we see those numbers, we see why this discussion continues with our legislature. Uh, Jeff, can we talk about sports for a moment? Let's do it. Wow. So we also did some polling about what, how Utahns feel about sports teams. Uh, 33% of Utah said they would love to have an NFL team uh, here in the state. 31% said we, they, this is an order. A Major League Baseball team, 10% National Hockey League, 18% National Women's Soccer League, 9% Women's National Basketball League. Just to kind of show you where the interest is here, because this week in the legislature, we saw a couple resolutions. One, a concurrent resolution supporting Major League Baseball in Utah. 
I mean, I think that the idea of bringing national sports teams to Utah is a great idea. Obviously, everyone's really excited about it. I think there are a couple of things that we need to think about. One of those is how do we pay for that? Because oftentimes these teams come in and they want us to help out, right, as taxpayers. I think that the second thing that we need to really think about is what's the ultimate purpose for bringing these folks in? I think sometimes as a state, um, we want to seek this sense of legitimacy. And I think that we're pretty legit without having to have a whole bunch of sports teams here. I did think it was interesting that the Tribune report this morning that Salt Lake is the number two worst um, sports city, according to uh, National Basketball Association fans, or I think maybe it was uh, people visiting, visitors. So we might have a little bit of work to do on that as well as we bring in people from other parts of the country to Utah to watch uh, Major League Baseball or probably even the Utah Jazz for now. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I, I'm just going to push back on that. So if you read that poll, they're basically uh, criticizing Utah because we don't have casinos downtown um, and, and we don't have enough bars. I mean, we have plenty of bars based on our population. But, um, you know, I don't think, um, first of all, I don't think a lot of people are traveling in, you know, from New York to watch a jazz game unless they're going to be here anyway. But second of all, I, I think, uh, imagine Salt Lake without the jazz or, or Utah without the jazz. I, I'm really excited. I'm not sure that we're going to get an NFL team in my lifetime or a hockey team but I think we could have Major League Baseball here in the next two years mm -hmm. and that is very exciting to me. Well, interestingly Sage uh, we had uh, Steve Starks from the Larry H. Miller Company, the President and CEO uh, he said we will see uh, something from Big League Utah soon about potential renderings, this is for baseball and the A's are apparently going to do it, at least be in the state of Utah for a couple of years while their stadium is being built in Nevada. I think that'll give us like a nice groundwork to see if there's an appetite for these big league sports teams to come to Utah. I do know that the, the Utah Jazz has a very loyal base here, a question of growing that or even moving the arena somewhere else, I know is going to cause a lot of contention. But Utah loves college sports, and I'm very curious if that would if that would hop over to national to, to national leagues, uh, because I think people love the localized feeling of a college sports team. There's not as much risk associated with it, and people are mostly doing it for the passion of playing the sport rather than for a paycheck. And so I I mean I think I mean it's going to be an experiment, but there is a question of yeah exactly what Jeff said. Who is going to pay for these updates to the stadium? Where's it going to go, and who's going to benefit most from it? Mm -hmm. uh, just to be thorough, too, on, on hockey, uh, Senate Joint Resolution 12 uh, is the Senate Joint Resolution supporting a National Hockey League. So that did come up. So you got baseball and hockey this week. Uh, Ryan Smith uh, joined President Adams on the, the dais. You were there for that, yeah, right? Was. Talking about the potential. His wife, uh, Ryan's wife, was there with him, too. It was great to have them there. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, I let's think the most important thing, though, is what we're going to name these teams. And that will probably <laughs> be the single most controversial <laughs> element of all of this. That Who cares about how much it costs? Who cares how we're going to pay for it? But boy, if we have the Salt Lake Seagulls, people are going to be mad. Okay. Salt Lake Alliance with Z's on the end. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. Should, they should leave it to us to, to right. name it, apparently. I want to get to a couple more bills. Uh, Jeff, let's start with you on a bill from Senator Keith Grover, Youth Service Organizations. What's interesting about this one is it will require youth service organizations to search the Utah and National Sex Offender Registries before they employ or use a volunteer. And uh, these groups include sports leagues, athletics, churches, religious organization. If you've got 25 or more kids and they're being supervised, you have to run the name of who's, who's uh, leading them through these registries. 
Yeah, I guess that my question is why we haven't been doing this for a long time and why we're limiting it at people 25, you know, more than 25. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, we've got people that are looking and working with these kids and we ought to make sure that they're, you know, safe. I mean, most of these folks hopefully are perfectly fine. And I don't, as, as a parent, if I was coaching my kids baseball team or mm -hmm. hockey team or whatever other kind of team there was in hopes that they would one day join the Salt Lake, you know, professional league that we're going to get. Of course, I would submit to that. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing for people to be asked to do. And um, I, I mean, hopefully there's not any opposition to something like that. But certainly that's something that we should be doing. And frankly, we ought to be thinking about doing it anytime someone is going to be working with, with kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm supporting that bill. Um, I was fortunately not molested as a child, but I remember when I was about 13 years old, I went to a Boy Scout camp in Wisconsin because I grew mm -hmm. up in Illinois. And I was I was at the rifle and shotgun range and I was the last boy there. And I was helping the the, the leader clean up and, and shut down for the day. And he asked me if I could if he could take a picture of me. And I said, sure. And then he said, well, do you mind taking your shirt off? I'm like, no, I don't mind. I took it off and he took a picture of me. And um, about five years later, I'm like, what the heck was that all about? <laughs> Nothing else happened, fortunately to me, but I do think that, that people that are maybe interested in children do gravitate sometimes to these organizations, and I think we can't take enough uh, mm -hmm. steps to protect our kids. Mm -hmm. when, if this bill passes, everyone has to be run through these two databases. Yes. Um, a couple of other bills uh, I wanted to get to, Sage, talk about one that's dealing with the Constitution uh, in particular. So House Joint Resolution 14 would uh, amend the Constitution to require you have to get 60% threshold. This is for people who want to uh, uh, impose a new tax on the state. So if I was a citizen and I wanted to uh, go out and get signatures uh, to force a tax increase, for example, this is going to raise that level. Talk about the sort of the background on that a little bit as to why uh, th this is uh, Jason Kyle, Representative Jason Kyle, would want to increase some of these thresholds. That's actually a really good question. I don't know why specifically he would want to increase the threshold, but I do know that maybe having more of a majority on increasing something that would take, would, that would deduct from your paycheck wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. I do know that it's also pretty difficult to uh, change the Constitution in this measure. We know that there's happening one with, you know, repealing uh, state sales tax for in return for removing the earmark on education. Uh, but I do know, like we've talked about, people are kind of hesitant about increasing taxes. They would rather you decrease them. So if you are going to increase them, maybe having more of a majority mm -hmm. rather than, you know, 50 or so percent would be more palatable. Mm -hmm. Todd, do you have anything on that? Well, yeah. So uh, Utah is one of about 25 states that has the citizen initiative and referendum process. But our constitution says the right of the people at the ballot box is equal to the right of the legislature. So if you're going to try to make it harder for the people to do something, without making it harder for the legislature, I, I don't think that's going to pass yeah. muster. I mean, the, the words are co-equal, as they yeah. say, Jeff, yeah. uh, is, yeah. is what comes with these initiatives versus the legislative powers. Because a companion bill to this is House Bill 284 that would also would raise the threshold for ballot initiatives that raise taxes to 60%. Talk about that, <clears> because uh, some legislators talk about, well, we don't want to be legislating like they do in California, which is sort of budget by initiative, is, yeah. Is, yeah. It, by proposition. Is that kind of the idea? I mean, well, first, we. I haven't seen that happen in Utah. I think that we have plenty of other safeguards in place to make sure that things like that don't happen. But this idea of increasing the threshold to 60% to me just 
reeks of anti-democratic, uh, you know, it's just a, a terrible idea, I think. One of the beauties of this initiative process is that at the end of the day, the people get to decide. And uh, just like with the legislature where you need 50 plus one, uh, I think that, that should be the case with uh, initiatives. To be perfectly honest with you, I really feel like this 60% idea um, is a way for certain lawmakers to be able to protect themselves when things happen that they don't like. I mean, we saw in 2018, not one, not two, but three propositions get passed, and then the legislature almost immediately alter all three of those. And the fact is, is that a lot of people didn't like that. A 60% threshold gives a lot, of, a lot of protection to legislators who don't like the people coming up with ideas and passing them on their own. Well, it just a reminder that all three of those became law, and that's why we have legalized marijuana and Medicaid expansion and, and whatnot. And they were altered by the legislature. They all became law. So, the people's will was, all, was respected. Yeah. Kind of respected, right? Because that certainly wasn't the case with gerrymandering. Okay, we're going to leave this one for a moment. Just think <laughs> about that one for a, a moment. Uh, I want to talk about just a couple of elections really quickly because some polling has just come out. And of course, many of us in the state of Utah are watching the United States Senate race. And I want to talk about some polling that just came out. Just give us a little bit of context here as well. Uh, these are uh, a people polled. These are Republicans who said they would be voting in the primary. Uh, top of the of that right now is John Curtis. Uh, was at 18%. Brent Orrin Hatch, son of the Lay Orrin Hatch was at 14%, Brad Wilson, eight, Trent Staggs, three. I'm gonna give those right now. Sage, give us some of this context right here because um, these are some names that, in the political circles, we tend to know pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I do wanna know how Brad Wilson is doing, just like mentally and physically right now. Uh, Cause he seemed to be kind of the front, like the front leader when we found out that Mitt Romney was not going to run for reelection. And then there was kind of some, some, some whispers about if Representative John Curtis was going to run and he ended up is running for Mitt Romney's seat. And so those numbers have kind of shifted. And I know that John Curtis is more of a moderate Republican. I would argue so is Brad Wilson, but he has more name recognition. He understands the interworkings of Congress probably way more intimately than Brad Wilson does. And uh, he, I think he's, I think, I think, John Curtis is probably really tired of the antics of the House and maybe wants something a little mm. less chaotic in the Senate. I will say with Brent Orrin Hatch, his dad is a legacy in 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 the in the U.S. Senate, longest serving senator, right? I believe um, from, Utah. from Utah before um, he passed away, and so he also does have name recognition, and he can also kind of lean on his father's legacy to help amp up a base and Republican voters to to get by. Um, I do think it's going to be very interesting at the caucus convention, though, how that goes down. That's, that's true. Go ahead, Jeff. I think, that, I think that Sage has kind of tapped on the reality of this poll, which is the people that, that are known, whose name is known best, are the ones that are at the top. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it's a real challenge for, uh, for Wilson in the sense that I think that as the speaker, he thought that he had a lot of name recognition, a lot of people knew him, and some people do, but I don't think that nearly as many as he may have thought. Meanwhile, you have someone who's relatively unknown, and, and yet because of his last name, uh, Hatch is pulling in at second place. So I think there's a lot of stuff that's gonna happen mm -hmm. over the next few months, and um, I mean, if I were a Republican in this race, I'd certainly be getting signatures mm -hmm. because it's going to be um, it's going to be a very interesting convention. It's going to have to be the last comment tonight. Very insightful. Thank you for listening to the Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.